here we are this morning picking up in the fourth chapter, and the message today is entitled, The Unity of the Spirit. And so as I have pointed out, we've come now to uh, the practical application portion of this letter written by Paul to the Ephesians, and we saw how he begins this, this new section with the uh, call to walk worthy, walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. I also pointed out uh, that there are two areas that Paul is going to emphasize in this section on our walk. And those two areas are unity and holiness. Those, those are the things that he's going to deal with in this next portion of scripture. Unity and holiness. And these are the two fundamental features of a life worthy of the church's divine calling. And so it's in the first 16 verses that he deals with the subject of, of unity And then from that point, he goes into the subject of holiness. So over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Today, we're going to focus on the first six verses, verses 1 through 6. But before we get to that, uh, let me say a few things. Uh, Occasionally, I've been asked this question. And the question is, uh, what do you think the Lord is is doing today, or you know, people have asked me, you know, if you if you had to sort of pinpoint, you know, one area where you really feel like the spirit is wanting to move, or or the spirit is is speaking uh, this this thing to the church, what what would that be? What is, what is the spirit saying to the church today? And I uh, generally have replied with, I believe that the Lord is speaking to his church about unity. And this is something that I've been sensing for quite a few years now. As I, as I read the scriptures myself, as I study the word of God, as I travel, as I speak, as I connect with other churches and leaders, I, I just get this sense in these days that this is what the spirit is saying to the church that we need to endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit. And I, I feel strongly about that. I, I feel passionate about that. The Lord is speaking to his church about unity, about loving one another, even across denominational lines. You know, people on the outside, they tend to look at the church and they think because there's so many denominations, Christianity is just uh, a divided house. And in many ways, quite frankly, they're right, sadly. Uh, But it doesn't have to be. Because as you look at the broader spectrum of Christians all around the world and denominations and so forth, what most of the time people don't realize is that all of us essentially believe the same thing. We just have minor differences. But the sad thing is it's usually over the minor differences that we divide and become contentious with one another. So I believe that the Lord is is wanting unity in his church. He's speaking about loving one another across denominational lines and about working together as members of the universal body of Christ for the advancement 
of the kingdom of Christ. So that's my conviction. And that's what I have shared with people on occasion. And I have uh, sometimes spoken about this publicly. Uh, Sometimes I've written on the subject. Now, not everyone is happy with me about this. Uh, As a matter of fact, this really irritates some people. And uh, I have been accused by some of selling out. I don't know what I've sold out to, but I've been accused of selling out. I've been accused of compromising. Uh, Some people have accused me of being emergent. And I know most of you don't even know what that means. And the people that accuse me of that obviously don't know what it means either because they never would accuse me of being emergent if they knew what it really meant because I am the farthest thing from emergent. Some have pejoratively labeled me as an ecumenical evangelical. An ecumenical evangelical. Now, I have to say, that is a title that I gladly accept. All of us should be ecumenical evangelicals. What do those words mean? Well, ecumenical, according to Webster's Dictionary, it refers to being involved as Christians with different groups of Christians or different kinds of Christian churches. It refers to uh, Christians who seek to relate to the whole body of Christ. I think we are supposed to be ecumenical. We are supposed to look beyond our own uh, congregation. We're supposed to look beyond our own, uh, if it's a denomination or a movement, we're supposed to look beyond that. We're supposed to recognize that the body of Christ is much larger than our own personal experience of it. Evangelical, what does that mean? Well, again, according to Webster's, uh, an evangelical is someone who emphasizes salvation by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ through personal conversion. An evangelical is someone who emphasizes the authority of Scripture and the importance of preaching the gospel. So although uh, some who have used this term in reference to me have intended it to be a slight I, as I said, I gladly accept the title. We should all seek unity among all true Christians. Therefore, we should be ecumenical. But we can never give up essential biblical truth for the sake of unity. Therefore, we must be evangelical. Now, Again, let me just define this a bit further. An an evangelical or evangelicals are, by definition, those who hold fast to essential orthodox Christian doctrine. That's what an evangelical is. It is a person who holds fast to essential orthodox Christian doctrine, like the doctrine of creation, for example or the doctrine of the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, the doctrine of redemption through Christ and all of the the facets of that, the person of Christ, who he is, his deity, meaning the fact that he is the the divine son of God, that he is God in the flesh, uh, holding to the doctrine of his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection and ascension, 
and his second coming. That is what it is to be an evangelical. So holding firm to the the essential biblical doctrines, but recognizing that there are non-essential beliefs that usually are the source of division among us. And and we don't want to get tripped up by that. We want to be gracious. We want to go beyond those minor things and embrace our brothers and sisters across denominational lines who hold to the same essentials that we do, but might uh, differ from us in the non-essential things. And that's certainly what Paul is calling us to here. So here in verses one through six, the apostle tells us how to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called in unity with one another as God's people. So let me read the first six verses to you. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So Paul is pleading with his readers and with us as well that we would walk in unity. And he tells us to begin with that this is all uh, a matter of the way we think. So it's a matter of the heart and the mind. And so he gives us five things that will promote the unity of the spirit. The first is that we are to walk in all lowliness. In all lowliness. This word is sometimes translated humility. So if we are going to uh, be people who contribute to the unity of the church, we've got to be humble. That's where it starts. Lowliness of mind, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. The humble person or the person of a lowly mind is uh, the person who recognizes the worth and the value of other people. And humility is essential to unity. And the opposite of humility, you know, is pride. And when you look at division, in the body of Christ, if you look at it on a local level or if you look at it on the larger level, quite often, if not always, pride lurks behind uh, that division. Most often it's true. The person causing division among God's people is being driven by their pride. It's the pride of being seen sometimes as right. We have the right view. We know better than everybody else. We have a a deeper and a clearer understanding. And everybody who uh, disagrees with us is then somehow uh, below us in some sense. And that attitude, of course, creates division. 
or the pride of being seen uh, or perceived as a person who is more spiritual or more holy than others. And oftentimes that is the source of division. And then there is the pride of being looked up to and followed. And sometimes that's the case. Paul actually warned the elders at this very church in Ephesus that one day in the future, he said, men would rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And so often that's what's happening. There's pride there, and it's the pride that's causing um, the divisions within the church. And so we all have to walk in humility. Now, I believe that it's possible to have uh, correct doctrine. I believe that it's possible to you know, be pretty close, at least, to, to what the Scripture is really saying. But we have to be on our guard that, that we don't think ourselves better than everyone else because that's uh, where, where we've come to. We have to recognize that, well, we see it this way, but not everybody sees it this way. So we have to uh, be gracious toward people who don't see it exactly the way we do. And it's these, these little things so often that have been the source of strife and, and division within the church, which subsequently leads to the church being a, a terrible example of what Jesus wanted it to be, so far from what the Lord intended. So we have to get away from that that prideful mentality that would, you know, see ourselves superior to, to others. Sometimes I listen to guys speak. Sometimes I hear it from pastors and, and they, they speak in, in such a way as to imply that, you know, our church is better than other churches. I, I knew a guy years ago who, uh, used to say this and I, I thought he was joking back then, but since, Time has passed. I don't know. Maybe he was serious. But he used to say, you know, I want to put a sign up in the front of our church saying, we're not claiming to be um, the best church in town, but we're not saying that we're not either. And, you know, just the, the whole mentality, like the best church in town, what does that mean? That's like a kid in a family going, I'm going to be the most loved of the children being in competition constantly with their brothers and sisters and, and you know, vying for the, the affection of the parents. There's something wrong with that. That's not a healthy perspective. That's a, that's a, that's a demented mind that thinks that. We're the best church in town. We're better Christians than anybody. God loves us more than he loves every other Christian. No. We, we don't want to think that way. That's the opposite of what Paul is talking about here. Lowliness of mind. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. So he starts with humility. And then, because humility leads to unity, but then he goes on to gentleness. And the word can be translated meekness. And these two things go together, really, because humility is the, it's the heart and then meekness is how that shows itself in our behavior. So meekness, sometimes when people think of, of meekness, they, they see it as a synonym for weakness. 
But that's not the case. On the contrary, it is the gentleness of the strong. Jesus was the, the, he was the incarnation of meekness. Oh, Jesus was strong. Of course he was. But yet he was gentle. He was, in the truest sense, he was meek. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of themselves and the servant of others. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. The absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. See, that's how divisions come, right? Amongst ourselves as a local body, those kinds of things can rise up when somebody is insisting on asserting their rights. Well, I don't like that, and I like it this way, and I don't want it to be that way, and I don't care what everybody else thinks, and I don't care that um, the majority feel differently. This is how I feel, and I want it like this. And I'm going to squawk and scream, and I'm going to tell other people how I feel. That's the opposite of what's being described here. We have to be careful about those things. So there's humility, then there's gentleness, but then he has another two that he couples together, long-suffering and mutual forbearance. So long-suffering, long-suffering means just what it sounds like it means. It means you put up with things that you don't like and you do it for a long time. <laughs> long-suffering, patience. Now, the, the obvious picture here is that you're applying this to uh, an aggravating person. Oh, there are plenty of people. I don't need any patience with them whatsoever. I don't need to be long-suffering because they're so easy to get along with. And we agree on everything and we can work together and it's wonderful and it's great. But you know, you find as you go in life and as you're in ministry as I am, and as you're a pastor of a church with a lot of people in it, um, not everybody is like that. And there are some people that uh, are sometimes aggravating. And yet at the same time, you have to be patient. You can't just, as the, maybe the natural tendency would be just to dismiss uh, people like that. You have, to, you have to be long-suffering with them. You have to forbear. The word forbear could probably, or the, the idea there would probably be that of tolerance. A tolerance in the correct sense. We have a complete uh, distortion of the definition of tolerance in our culture today. Uh, tolerance means putting up with something you don't agree with or like. It doesn't mean, uh, as some would suggest today, if you're tolerant, it means you support what they do, you agree with what they do, you pr- you, you're to praise what they do. Um, that's not tolerance. Tolerance is, I disagree, I don't like that, I don't think it's right, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put up with it. I'm going to live with it. I'm going to treat you kindly and nicely regardless of what I feel about that. So these are the things that he's talking about here. And without these things, there will be no unity. But if this is the mind that we have, this will uh, lend to unity 
amongst us as God's people. But then he brings in one final thing, and that is love. And you see, love is the one that really encompasses everything else. Because, of course, if you truly love other people, you're going to act humbly toward them. If you truly love other people, you're going to be meek. If you truly love other people, you're going to be patient with them. If you truly love other people, you're going to tolerate things that you might not necessarily agree with them about it. About, uh, But for the sake of love, you will do it because Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Boy, that passage always gets me. It always convicts me. In a good way, it reminds me. Love covers a multitude of sins. That means that love, the tendency of love is to overlook things, not to take account of them. If I'm always making a list of people's faults and the way people bother me or offend me, whether it's a literal list or a mental list. If I'm doing that, then I'm not walking in love because love covers a multitude of sins. Love just overlooks it. Love says, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm not going to let that get in the way of of what's happening here. I'm not going to let that get in the way of this relationship. Love covers a multitude of sins. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in that great passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, he said love is long-suffering, or it suffers long, but then he added this to it, it suffers long and is kind. So, see, Paul is bringing love in here as the final uh, component. And one more reference to love, love does its neighbor no harm. So this is the This is the thing that God is wanting to see amongst us as his people. He's wanting us to love each other. Remember, Jesus, just before he went to the cross, when he was with his disciples there around the Last Supper, that night, he's speaking to them. And John records this in the 13th chapter. And he says to them, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, for by this, all will know that you are my disciples. See, Jesus said, this is how people would know that that we are his followers. This is how they would know that, that he's the right person to follow. That his message is the, the right message. It's the true message. If they, if we love one another, that's the, the thing that's going to impact people powerfully. A few years ago, I wrote a little book on ministry, and I included a chapter in it uh, entitled The Supremacy of Love. And I want to just quote a paragraph from there today. And I wouldn't normally quote from my own book, but I heard Alistair Begg do it recently on the radio. And I thought, if Alistair can do it, then I can do it as well. Actually, it's just much easier than trying to remember what I wrote. Uh, So here it is. The scripture refers to the church as a nation, a nation in which men and women love each other. Isn't that a beautiful picture? People loving each other, people helping each other, people encouraging each other, people building one another up, people looking out for their neighbor, people putting the needs of others before themselves, people from every tribe, tongue, and ethnic group. That's the picture of what the church is to be. The church is to be marked first and foremost by love, love for God love for one another, 
and love for those who have yet to come to know Christ. Our churches should be places where people can come and find love in the truest sense. As people look at the church today, is that what they see? Or do they perhaps see a church that is bitter, angry, condemning, and loveless? When the love of Christ is no longer the driving force of a ministry, the church loses its uniqueness, beauty, and ultimately its attraction. Love will result in unity, and unity will testify to the world of the reality and the power of Jesus. You see, unity is like, it's the visible manifestation of love. This is how we show people that we love each other. We don't, don't just talk about it. We, we don't just say, I love you, but we are living together in unity, dwelling together in unity, how pleasant that is, as the psalm said that we read this morning. How good and how pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. And as we do that, this is a unique thing. You, you don't find this in the world. The world is it's just divided over and over and over and over and over again. And so this is one of the ways in which the, the church is to be radically distinct from the world. The world is full of divisions. The church is to be a place where you find unity among people. And that comes through love. And every time the emphasis has been upon love in the history of the church, no matter what age it's been, that's when the church has been the most impactful. In the second century, a non-Christian Greek philosopher wrote this about the Christian community of his day. Listen to what he said. He said, they seek to persuade their servants or handmaids or children to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They walk in all humility and kindness, and they love one another. When they see a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. So here's a non-Christian Greek philosopher. He's looking on at the Christian community, and there's one thing he knows for sure. These people love each other. This was powerful. This was attractive. This was a beautiful thing. And you can see that he wrote favorably uh, when not everybody had a favorable attitude toward the church at that time. Now, we've, of course, come a long ways in history, and we're far from that. And um, I think many times today, people looking in from the outside, observing, and then writing, their perspective is not nearly as favorable, is it? Quite often, it's, it's quite negative. And sometimes that's just simply because they have a bias. But I think sometimes there's some uh, truth to what they're saying. Because they look on at the church and they look on at Christians and they find that the same kinds of petty divisions and conflicts and things, they, they exist among Christians just, just like they do outside the church. And that should not be the case. And so we are, the apostle then goes on to say, we are to endeavor to keep 
the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So there's a few things here that we need to consider. First of all, we are to endeavor. This is a strong word. It means that we are to be eager. We are to spare no effort. We are to make haste. The idea is that we take the initiative and we do all that we can. So you see, we are called, notice, we're called not to create unity. This is the mistake that some people have made. They've, they've put unity as the number one thing. And they've said, we've got to be unified as Christians. You know, that's the, the witness. You know, I'm saying something similar, but they take it to a different level and, and they take it beyond what's actually the case. And they would go so far as to say, we have to be unified at all costs. So we throw out the truth for the sake of, un- of, of unity. Because the truth sometimes tends to divide. So forget the truth. Let's just have unity. We're going to have unity to advance the kingdom of God. We don't really believe in the king, but we're going to try to advance his kingdom. No, you can't do that. And we're not at all suggesting that or talking about anything like that. We're not called to create a unity. There already is naturally a unity. There's a unity that exists because we are all children of the same father. And we are all indwelt by the same spirit. So we're not talking about creating a unity, something that's false and man-made. We're talking about realizing that there already exists a unity. We are called to do our best to maintain that. We are to put forth every effort to maintain the unity. So in other words, when I meet people who are truly Christians, regardless of their denominational affiliation, I need to do everything I can to make sure that we're, we're living in that bond of peace together with one another. That's my obligation. That's my responsibility. Whether they go to my church or belong to my denomination or whatever the case, that doesn't matter. There's the unity of the spirit that exists there, and we are called to maintain it. How do we do it? We do it through humility, meekness, long-suffering, tolerance, and love. That's how we maintain the unity of the spirit. So instead of focusing on the things that we disagree about, we focus on the things that we agree on, those essential things, those those things that are the most, when I say essential, I'm talking about the most important things. There are things regarding the Christian faith that are of vital importance. They're of essential importance. Uh, they're so important that uh, to set them aside, you wouldn't really be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You can't be a Christian and not believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. So those are essential things. But when you meet a person who believes those things and yet differs with you on other minor things like uh, the method of how you baptize people or what your view on um, the scenario for the last days is or just exactly uh, what the mechanism uh, for salvation might be um, 
things like uh, predestination, election, free will, these kinds of things that, that are so often the things that Christians war over. Those are the things that we have to be able to just say, you know what, that doesn't matter at this point. I have to let those minor things go and focus on the primary thing. This person believes in Jesus. This person is a child of my Father God. And this person is indwelt by the same spirit that I'm indwelt with. So we are already one. And I've got to do my best to maintain that. So I have to just, some of these things I just have to overlook, uh, realize that, you know, we're never going to agree on this, but it doesn't matter if we agree on it. We don't have to agree on it because it's not an essential. Now, that's where Paul, that's kind of the, the foundation of everything he's saying. He reminds us of that when he comes to verses four through six, where he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So since that's the case, this is really what Paul's saying, since that's the case, the the natural thing that should proceed from that would be love for one another and unity resulting from that love. It's the natural flow. So if we are uh, people who tend to be divisive, or divisive is the proper way to say it, I guess. But if we tend to be those kinds of people, if we tend to always be looking to find fault with somebody's doctrine, well, they don't believe this and they don't believe that. Or we tend to look down on other churches or other expressions of Christianity, then we are out of sync with God himself. He's not doing that because those are his children and he's put his spirit in them. And who are we to say? You know, I found this more and more as I've gotten older and lived longer and experienced life more in ministry. Uh, I have met people who have told me their stories and, you know, given me their testimonies. And it's, you know, there's no question in my mind that the person's a believer and not just a believer, but a, a true lover of God and a follower of Christ and a servant of his. And, you know, I've had occasions where people have told me their, their testimony. And, you know, I just think, wow. You know, a few years ago, I would have said, no way. You can't be saved. I won't allow for that. It doesn't fit into my theology of how God works. But I've had to learn over the years that God really doesn't consult me about how he's going to work in people's lives. And he's always blowing my mind with the things that he does that just didn't fit into the little box that I had put him in. You know, we talk about that sometimes, putting God in a box. There are a lot of people that have God in a box. They've got God in this little box, and he can only do these few things. He can only, you know, these are the parameters right here. Now, I agree that God works within the parameters of his word, but sometimes the, the problem is not the parameters of his word. The problem is we start interpreting the word so narrowly that, again, we end up at the same place. God can hardly do anything because it doesn't really fit with our theology. So we have to be careful. There's one God. He is the father of us all. There's one spirit. We are indwelt by that one spirit. There's one body. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's only one church. And every single person on the planet 
who names the name of Jesus in sincerity and truth, every single person, regardless of the denomination that they belong to, that has embraced Christ as the savior of their souls, that person is part of the family. You know, speaking from a purely human standpoint, I know this for a fact, nothing pleases a father more than love among his children. Oh, when a father, when parents see their children loving one another, that's so wonderful. It's so precious. It's so right. It's so good. It's so much what you want to see. A few months ago, when we went through the the crisis with our granddaughter and she had the open heart surgery, Cheryl and I, we were so blessed to see how our kids all rallied together, to see how my daughter's Uh, took the time and went up and they were there with their brother and sister-in-law and their nephews and they were just helping out and serving and blessing them. And it was such a delight to us and to see how uh, my younger son, although he wasn't able to go up and and help out in that way. He was, he was regularly you know, on the phone and sending messages and encouraging and praying for them. And, and there really was a moment where Cheryl and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. This is so sweet. And of course, that's true, right? And you know what? The same is true with God. When God sees his children loving each other, it delights his heart. Nothing pleases a father more than love among his children. Few things grieve a father more than strife and division and animosity among his children. Oh, that's such a grief. And some of you know that. We know what it's like to have broken families, divided families, families that live in hostility toward one another. That's a heartbreak, isn't it? And for a parent, if you have that kind of a situation with your children, you see that, you just think, oh, Lord, have mercy. That's just so painful to see that. You hear them say negative things about their spouse. Sometimes you see jealousy or things like that, and you just think, oh, Lord, it's heartbreaking. Guess what? We have the ability to break the heart of God. The Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Paul said it right here in Ephesians chapter five, or maybe four. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means that you can, you can break God's heart. And surely this is heartbreaking to God when we would strike out against our brothers and sisters, when we would uh, speak evil of them. <laughs> when we would say unkind and untrue things about them. I have to tell you, honestly, I am shocked. I am absolutely shocked at the things that some Christians will say about other Christians. I'm shocked. Sometimes I read stuff, I think, wow, where did you ever get the idea that you could say stuff like that as a Christian? I mean, it's so crystal clear, you know, coming I'm reading this stuff on the internet, but man, it's like the, the hatred is seeping right through my screen. And I think, how did, how did we ever get to a place where we thought that we could talk about people like this, especially people who are God's people? But so often we find these kinds of things, rants on the internet against some of God's servants. Sometimes I'll have somebody come up to me and they'll start you know, going off on somebody that they perceive to be a false prophet. And you just, you know, their veins are all popping out of their neck and they're so angry and, and, you know, you just think, wow, this is sad. This is really, really 
this is pathetic. That we as Christians, that we would think that we have a right to, to talk about our brothers and sisters like that. You know, Paul rebuked the Roman church for gossip and things like that and judging one another. And at one point he asked this question. He said, who are you to judge another man's servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls. And God is surely able to make him stand. Who are we to think that we can stand in judgment of of another man's servant? Who's the other man? God is the other man. God, I don't like the way your child is acting. I don't like what I hear your child saying. Some people feel that they've been called to rebuke, to reprimand. They've been given a discernment ministry. They know all of the truth, and nobody knows the truth quite like they do. And they're going to correct everybody. I have no time for that. It's pathetic. That's not at all in sync with what Paul is talking about here. It's so opposite of Paul's exhortation here for us to walk worthy of the calling. No, we're to walk in lowliness, in meekness, in patience, in tolerance, in love toward one another. And if we don't agree We need to learn to just say, you know what? Okay, I I see it differently than you do. But I'm not going to think myself better. And, and, you know, I, I hold strong convictions about certain things. And not everybody that I... uh, listen to as far as somebody who would give me input in teaching or people that I appreciate in ministry hold to the same convictions that I do about certain things. But, you know, because those things are non-essential, because they're, they're not the core issues, I, I don't let that bother me. I, I want to hear them on the core issues. Boy, what they have to say on the core issues are vital to me. They strengthen me. They bless me. They build me up. Uh, no, they, we don't hold the same exact views on maybe the um, days of creation or something like that. We don't hold the exact same views on eschatology, which are the study of the end times. We might not even hold the same view on uh, the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we do hold the same view on God and Christ and salvation. And that's the important thing. Those are the vital things. And so those are the things that we really have to rally around. Now, I've had the experience over many years. And, you know, this is, this is something that I had, to, I had to learn, actually. I had to grow into this. Because I, you know, years ago, I, I was kind of in a debate with a person a while back. And they were trying to prove their point that I'm this terrible person because I'm all compromised now. And they, they looked at me and they said, you've changed. You've changed. You're not like you used to be. And I said, you know, thank God I've changed. Yes, I have. I've grown up. I became mature. And I realized that we don't need to fight with other Christians about every little thing. When I was younger, I'd fight with anybody about anything. <laughs> you didn't agree with me on this doctrine? Well, I wasn't going to let that sit. We were going to have to fight that one out. But you know, you grow, you mature, you realize, no, this isn't right. 
And over many years, God's taken me to many different places and introduced me to all different kinds of people from different denominational backgrounds and things. And I find myself uh, associating with and, and working alongside of um, people from all different parts of the church, Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Pentecostals and Catholics. And, it, and you know, I, I meet these people and it's like, wow, I don't, even, I don't even know their, you know, you just meet them as a Christian. You don't know their background and then you get to know them a little better and you're, you're obviously connected to them spiritually. You've got that spiritual uh, bond there, and then you find out what their what their background is, denominationally maybe, and, you, and then you're like, wow, okay, yeah. Well, I know this person's really a believer. That's that's obvious. So the Lord has allowed me to have those kinds of experiences. But I, I know, frankly, I know many people today in ministry. They've just they've they've kind of just been in in their this one little part of the body of Christ, and they're sort of suspicious about everybody who's outside of it. And because they, that group out there, you know, no, they don't believe this like we do in that, then, you know, there's got to be something wrong. We need to stay away. We, uh, you know, uh, yeah, okay, I know we're related, but, you know, we we don't want to talk about that. I'll love them from a distance. Well, no, that's not the way it works. We need to love truly. And so endeavoring to maintain the unity of the spirit. So God has given me those kinds of experiences. And like I said earlier, I've met people and I've, I've heard their stories and I've just been astounded at God's grace and how creative he is and how uh, he works in ways that you, you know, maybe because of your own particular theological view, you wouldn't think that he could work that way, but he does. Reminds me of Peter. Peter, because of his Jewish upbringing, he just didn't think that God could do anything among Gentiles. And then he's called to go to the house of Cornelius. And he goes into the house of Cornelius and he finds that God's doing something that Peter never imagined God could be doing. And then when he goes through that experience and he comes back to Jerusalem and he tells the Jews there that he had gone into the house of this man, Cornelius, this Gentile. And they were like, are you kidding? You went into the house of a Gentile and you ate with him? Peter, what are you thinking? You're a Jew. You can't do stuff like that. God doesn't know that the guy's a Gentile. And Peter's like, I know. I felt the same way. But what can I do? I started sharing the gospel with him and God poured the Holy Spirit on him just like he did on us. And they started prophesying and speaking in tongues. What was I to do? Say, God, you can't do that? <laughs> I felt like Peter had sometimes. Wait, God, no, no, no. No, you can't do that. I, I, that doesn't fit in my theology. I don't believe that you could touch somebody by that kind of a method. But you see, this is where we just have to break away from that and recognize God is working. He's bigger than we think. And again, let me emphasize for anybody who might be in some way, shape, or form misunderstanding me, I am talking about the non-essentials. I'm talking about the non-essentials. I already described what 
an evangelical is. That's what I am. That's what we are. (laughs) People who believe the Bible. People who believe in Christ, his death, his resurrection, his atoning death, the necessity of the new birth, those things. Those are the essential things. I'm talking about the other things that so often are the things that divide us. So God help us. God help us not to grieve our father or stumble others through causing and spreading division. Rather, let's give every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit first right here among us. Now, I'll I'll tell you a funny thing. Um, Of course, I've given the same message all morning. And, uh, you know, I, I announced last week that we were going to have a, an acoustic service, and we did that this morning, and, and it was a wonderful time. And quite honestly, in my preparation and delivery of this message, we have had some little bit of division here in the church, some murmuring and complaining and all about the music. But, but honestly, before God, when I was preparing this message and delivering it, that thought never crossed my mind one time. So I was never preaching to anybody about that at all because it just never crossed my mind. I kind of had just a completely different, uh, you know, mindset where I was going with this message. So I never once thought about that. And I had about a half a dozen people at first service come up to me afterwards and apologize and say, forgive me, because I've been guilty of causing division over the music. And it shocked me. I was like, oh, wow. And it was beautiful because I wasn't preaching at them, but apparently God was. (laughs) Apparently, he was convicting them. And it was great. It was. And and one one precious elderly lady, she came and she said, please forgive me. I have I have just said so many bad things. And and she said, just because when that drum beats, it just wells up in me and I just get so angry. And I said, okay, but how did you feel this morning? Because we didn't have the drum. She said, I loved it. I loved it. Thank you so much. And she said, and you know, if, if anybody says anything bad about you, you just send it to me and I'm going to give them a punch <laughs> in love. <laughs> so it was sweet. So I'm not preaching this message because I'm fearful that we've got a bunch of division in the church. But of course, it's always a possibility, right? We can not like things and we can start gossiping and spreading stuff and get a little committee together. And God help us not to do that. We don't want to do that. One final thing. Um, so so we, want to, we want to exercise ourselves here, right here, seeking to maintain the unity of the spirit among ourselves, but then toward the larger body of Christ. You know, one of the greatest ways in the world to um, have God connect your heart with his, his larger family is to pray for other Christians of other denominations. Pray for the Christians in our community. Pray for the other churches in our community. Pray for the other pastors in our community. We should pray for one another. And we need to support one another. When we hear of God doing something good in a church that's not part of our group, we should rejoice in that. We should be thankful for that. And there are times when we should all get together to, to reach out and, and you know, put, put our efforts together to get the gospel out to the community. Those are good things. They're right things. We need to do those things. But it really, 
uh, praying for people. It can start there, and it can be so sweet. So, in closing, let's be ecumenical in the best sense of the word, having concern about the whole body of Christ and recognizing that God's people are everywhere under all different kinds of denominational banners. But then let's be evangelical in the truest sense of the word. We are inflexible when it comes to those essential doctrines. We stand solidly on those. They are the non-negotiables. You know, yesterday I did a memorial service here for a friend's family. And in the course of the memorial service, because I didn't know the the deceased, I, I shared with the group of people that um, I, my connection was through one of the family members. And then I told the story of uh, that particular family member who's a friend of mine who um, we knew each other in high school. We were disconnected for 35 years. Um, last time we had seen each other, neither, neither one of us were saved. And then God brought us back together and you know, in the Lord. And just, I was sharing this story and it was really sweet. And, and the, the people that were here, um, they kind of came from all the, all the same community over in uh, Huntington Beach over there. And they, they happened, many of them, to have gone uh, as families to St. Simon and Jude Catholic Church over on um, Magnolia. And I had occasionally gone there as a teenager, and so I was familiar with that. And then I had gone to St. Bonaventure's over on the other side of Huntington Beach. So, uh, you know, some of that came up in conversation. Uh, but anyway, at, when, the ser- when the service had concluded and we were over just uh, talking in the fellowship hall with the family and different people, this, this precious lady came up to me and she said, oh, I wanted to meet you. And I wanted to tell you how excited I was when you told that story today. She said, because a group of ladies and myself at St. Simon and Jude, for years and years, we prayed for that young man that he would come to know Jesus. And we are so thankful that God answered those prayers and brought him into a relationship with Jesus. And there it was, this little lady from St. Simon and Jude. Now, some people would say to me, did you tell her that Catholicism is of the devil? I have to confess, I did not tell her that. I didn't even feel remotely compelled to tell her that. But you see, that's what I'm saying. Some people would insist on that kind of a thing. You know, whatever her affiliation is, I know what Catholicism is. I left it. I have lots of issues with Catholicism. But this is one thing I know. Within Catholicism, there are true believers. And I met one of them yesterday. She's a true believer. She was rejoicing in the salvation of a soul and recognizing that it was Jesus who did the saving. Man, I was blessed by that. So let's not lose sight of that. And when you meet another Christian from another denomination, another background, if they're really a Christian, you embrace them. One other story. I'm in story mode. And oh, gosh, it's really late. Sorry. This is a good one. I'll close with this. (laughs) A few years ago, I was up in LA. 
And um, I might have told this story before, but uh, we, we were doing this outreach in Watts. And so there, there's a guy there who was the, I think he was a fire chief or something like that. So we're standing there and we, we got into this conversation and it was just a great conversation. We're talking about the Lord and, um, you know, he's kind of just sharing his story with me and I'm telling him my story. And we, we were just having this great time of fellowship. And it's somehow in the course of the conversation, he told me about the church that he went to. And when he told me about the church that he went to, I, honestly, I just, in my own heart, I said, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not <laughs> the critical person that I used to be. Because I would have never even thought that anybody who went to that church could even be saved in time past. But here I'm talking to a person who I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, convinced this, this person is a true believer. We're having great fellowship. But then he tells me that's the church he goes to. But I was thankful that God had done such a work in my heart that I could, I didn't bat an eye when he told me. It didn't even faze me. I just thought, oh, God, you are amazing. You work sometimes in the strangest places, but you're still working. And in that, we rejoice. Let's be ecumenical in the best sense of the word. Let's be evangelical in the truest sense of the word. Lord, we thank you that you are so good and you're so great and your love is so big and your church is so broad. And Lord, that we're part of this universal thing that you've been doing from the dawn of time. And you're going to keep doing it until Jesus returns. Lord, thank you that we are part of it. And Lord, help us to remember that we have one God and Father of us all. And one Lord Jesus. And one Spirit who is in us all. And Lord, may we do our part, whether it's personally right here in our own fellowship, or personally and individually as we con come into contact with other Christians, or collectively as a church, may we do our part to reach out and connect with your body, your people, our brothers and sisters, wherever we might find them. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.